I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 38. We have considered uh, through song, we've sung of God's grace with each other. Now we're going to see what the Bible says about it. And uh, we're going to do that in a story that might not be uh, obvious at first to accent God's grace, but uh, I'm sure that it does. As you're turning, let remind you of the power of God's Word. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, and of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, so that no creature is hidden in his sight, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We believe that to be true about God's word, every section of scripture. In Genesis chapter 38, we come to an unusual text but one that I know God can use to strengthen, convict, and encourage us as followers of his. When one turns the page, if it perhaps is on a page, or just turns from Genesis 37 to 38, it's easy to grow a little confused about what is going on. I've lived in confusion this week, so let me uh, put you there for just a moment. The last we heard in Genesis 37, we saw that Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery down into Egypt because of their growing hatred for him. Remember, they hated him so much they would not even say shalom to him. They were going to kill him, but then they threw him into a pit, and later they decided to sell him to Midianite slave traders, and that's where Genesis 37 ends. As a matter of fact, if you look at the last verse of chapter 37, it says, Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So we got Joseph in Egypt, sold to Potiphar. But in Genesis chapter 38, guess how much we hear about Joseph? That's right, nothing. Zero. Nothing. And we are introduced to, uh, or we're given some information about one of his brothers, his older brother Judah. A whole chapter about Judah. Joseph's in Egypt all by himself, and we got this section about Judah. So obvious is the intrusion of Genesis 38 into Joseph's story that Moses has to repeat Joseph's situation at the beginning of chapter 39. Look at chapter 39, verse 1 in your Bible. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. Okay, so at the end of 37, beginning of 39, you've got this, this reminder of where he is and what's going on. That leaves us with an important question. Why is Genesis 38 here? What is Moses's or God's literary purpose in doing this uh, why does he introduce this whole episode about J judah right into the middle of the joseph story 
It's like a story within a story. Judah's story within Joseph's story in the greater context. And the answer to that question is not really obvious. Especially when we consider the nature of Genesis 38. I mean, if you're looking ahead and you're reading a little bit down through chapter 38, you see the awkwardness and uncomfortableness of this text. What in the world is going on? Why is it here? Well, the answer to that question is important. If we're going to grasp uh, the meaning of this passage and how it's relevant for our lives. And so what I want to encourage you to do with, with me today, I want you to pay close attention as we walk through this text. We're going to look at what Genesis 38 says. And then at the end, we're going to answer that question, why is it here? And what's the application for us today? Okay, so that's how we're going to work through the text. Genesis 38 is about the fall of Judah, uh, son of Jacob. And it starts out with scene one. Scene one I call widespread devastation, verses 1 through 12. When I read the first 12 verses, I think of Job's story. Remember Job's story? All those sons, wife, all that, all that property and everything. And then Satan comes and takes it all away. That's kind of what happens to Judah here in similar ways. But it starts with good times, uh, widespread devastation, verses 1 through 5. So look at the good times, verse 1. Uh, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Ad- Adulamite, whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called her, his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. It's not three names that you find repeated very much in modern reading. Judah was in Chesiv when she bore him. Near the beginning of the story, we're introduced to two acquaintances, two new acquaintances that Judah makes. He, he makes a friend uh, by the name of Hira, the Adolamite, and he marries a woman, uh, and she is unnamed. His wife is not named in Scripture. She's the unnamed daughter of a man by the name of Shua. Now, we don't really know much about either of these two characters. Uh, As a matter of fact, as I said, uh, we don't even know her name. What we do know is that uh, Judah marries this woman, and they have three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. Judah is beginning to experience the joys of a growing family. Uh, But things quickly sour in verses 6 through 12. I call this section bad times. Look at verse 6. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn. And her name was Tamar. But Ur was Judah's firstborn. But but Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. 
Now, I'm going to ask you to stop reading. I know you want to keep reading. Uh, matter of fact, most of your heads were still down when I was done reading. You can't wait to see what's going on here. Either you're, you're so, feel like this is such an awkward conversation we're going to have from the text, or you just can't wait to find out what happens. Okay. So uh, stay with me, and as we work through it, I think it'll begin to make sense, and we'll see God's purposes here. The demise of Judah starts with uh, God's judgment on his firstborn son, Ur. Uh, we don't know what this man did. The text doesn't tell us what he did. Um, but it was bad. It was so bad that God decides to kill him. Er is the first individual, by my count, in Genesis or in the whole of the scripture that God kills. But the problem does not stop with Er. It continues on to uh, his second son, Onan, which we're given similar language to what happens to him. He did something evil in the sight of the Lord, and God killed him too. But with Onan, we're given more information about what actually happens here. And so we'll take a moment to look at it. Onan's deceased brother, Er, had married a wife, and her name was Tamar. Tamar, however, did not have any children with Er and was financially vulnerable herself without the support of her husband. But according to the law of Moses, there was a way for her not to be neglected and to be cared for. Later on in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, you could read about this. The solution, according to the law of Moses, was for her brother-in-law to marry her and to produce children for her. This law is called the law of leverite, leverite marriage, and it's called that for a Latin word, levir, which means brother-in-law. So when you hear that fancy term, leverite marriage, think brother-in-law marriage. The first son that would come would be the legal heir of the first husband. And the woman would be taken care of by her second husband, her former brother-in-law. So you get that? Okay, so that's what's supposed to happen according to the law of Moses after this. This anticipates that text in Deuteronomy, but there's something like that going on in this passage. But Onan will not cooperate. It seems to me, as I look at this text, that he does marry her, but he will not produce children with her. And the way the story is told, it is apparent that Onan is selfish in many different ways. One such way is he will not produce a child for Tamar, and I think his motives are selfish. You say, what in the world is going on in this passage? Is this like the scripture's testimony against birth control or something like that? What, what is the point? I'd say the point is not that. Onan's wickedness is, is worse than that. At, at this point, what you need to understand is there are only two heirs of Judah's estate, Onan and his younger brother, Shelah. And if Onan produces a son with Tamar, then Judah's estate will be divided three ways. Right, you get that? So right now it's just like him and one other guy, and they're going to split all of dad's stuff. But if he has a son, that son 
will become his deceased brother's son, and then they'll be parted three ways. Onan will have nothing of this, and he makes certain that there is no physical way for Tamar to have a child. And to the selfish man who uses Tamar for his own gratification, but will not give her a child, God takes note of it and kills him too. Edifying story, right? And that action by God leaves Tamar right where she was before, in the same situation with no heir and no way to provide for herself. And that brings Judah to suggest that Tamar go back to her father's house for a while and wait for his final son, Shelah, to become of meritable age so uh, she can have a spouse and perhaps children. But in verse 11, in the middle of the verse, there's another important thing I want you to see. <coughs> you look in the middle of verse 11. It says, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. Did you see that upon first reading? Here we find the real reason why Judah won't give Shelah to Tamar. And that is because he thinks if he gives Shelah to this woman, his third son's going to die too. In other words, he thinks she's like a black widow or something. Like, all I know is they give my sons to her. They become her wife and then they die. If I give him my third son, I'll have no sons left. I'll have no heirs. And so I think here in the text we find out that he has no intention of actually ever giving Sheila to her. There's one more death in our text in verse 12. Uh, recorded during these bad days in his life, Judah's unnamed wife dies also so that Judah and Shelah, his youngest son, are the only ones left in the family. Judah himself is almost without any offspring to continue his line or his name. All that's left is one son and one friend. That's why I say it's kind of like the Job story. Job's story, at the beginning of the story, no children left, one complaining wife, and a few fake friends. Widespread devastation. It's Judah here. That leads us to the next scene that takes place months later when Judah travels with his friend Hira. Uh, the second scene I entitle Secret Sins. And I want you to see Judah's problem. It begins with him indulging his flesh in the middle of verse 12. Look down at verse 12. Middle of the verse, it says, When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, Your father in law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she shook off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, that's a city, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila had grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff, that is in your hand. So she gave them to her and went in unto her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. 
Okay, stop reading again. Okay, and let's, let's consider this part of the text. Here, Judah's fall continues. This time he engages in what he believes is prostitution. As he's traveling the road to shear his sheep, he finds a woman that he perceives to be a prostitute because of the way she's dressed and because of where she's sitting near the city gate. And so Judah takes the bait. All along the way, though, we know, we know the truth of what's going on. We know that this is Tamar, and it's part of her plan to gain a son and gain an inheritance. Tamar knows what kind of man Judah is. Think about her plan. The only way this plan would work is if Judah is immoral with a prostitute. She knows what Judah is. And so Judah gets rid of his friend, and he propositions this woman, and she agrees if Judah will leave his signet, cord, and staff with her as a pledge. The signet and the cord, the signet would be a, 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 a cylinder with some markings on it, the cord would be hung around his neck. He also leaves his staff, the shepherd's staff, which would have engraving, inscription, indicating to everyone who is the owner of the staff. Giving her these things marks out his identity and would be something similar today of someone like giving your wallet with your credit card, your photo ID, maybe your cell phone, in a situation like this. These identity markers will make Judah quite vulnerable to this woman. You get that? Regardless, his sexual appetite is too strong, and he surrenders to his flesh. Tamar then leaves at the end of the scene without being recognized after her plan has worked to perfection. These are Judah's secret sins, but his secret sins continue in the next verses. Look at verse 20. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enam at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Next year, Judah tries to pay through his friend Hira so that he can get his pledge back. Judah doesn't even go back himself, but sends his friend with a goat. But Hira can't find her and uh, no one in the city knows who she is. So then Judah tries to what I would call save face. So in this text, he indulges the flesh and he tries to save face. He tries to regain some level of respect or dignity in the situation. He's trying to avoid personal shame in the situation. He does this a few ways. And I think they're found in verse 23, primarily. First, he says, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. Here, Judah is trying to cover his sin and save face. He's 
concerned that he and Hira will become a laughingstock in the city. Because this immoral woman, whoever she is, has fooled him and robbed him of his possessions. I'm sure at this point I was just thinking of Hira saying, what do you mean we are going to be laughed at here? This is your sin. Now the other thing that he does to save face is to repeat to his friend that he tried to do the right thing. Did you catch that? End of verse 23. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. What's Hira supposed to do here? Well, thanks for reminding me about that. I'd forgotten about that, me taking the goat all around the city. Finding her. Trying to find her. I'd forgotten about this. No, Judah is trying to distinguish himself, to justify himself, to avoid any shame from soliciting a prostitute, and he's concerned with what even his friend thinks about him. I'm sure Hira saw right through him. Those are Judah's secret sins. They follow the widespread devastation that he already was brought low with. And yet Judah's fall continues deeper, or farther, in the next scene, before bottoming out in his lowest moment. I think that happens in the next verses. Scene three, I've entitled... Judah's startling confession. Look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she was being, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by... She, she, sent, word by, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. Scene three, startling confession. We think, wow, what a turn. In this story, Judah begins to get what he deserves. Judah hears that Tamar has been immoral and he quickly pronounces a death penalty on her. Let her be burned. What sheer hypocrisy, right? Now we started this sermon out by asking an important question that we said that we would answer. Why is this story here? And why does it interrupt the Joseph story? It's at this point in the story, during this scene, that I think we begin to see the answers. I'll give you my answers to that question by commenting on two significant moments in this scene, right here. First, I want you to notice how Tamar makes her big reveal about the identity of the father. Okay, now before we look at it in this text, I want to back up one chapter to the story right before this. This is very important for you. Now, you can miss this if you're just like reading through it in the English Bible, but I really want you to see this. Go to Genesis 37, verse 22. Genesis 37, 22. 
It says, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found, note what he says, please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it. Okay, now look at Genesis 38, 25. Genesis 38, 25, next chapter. As she was being brought, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I, I, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet cord and the staff. And he identified it. Men and women, these are the exact same words that Judah had the servant use with his father in Genesis 37. In his deception of his father about Joseph being sold into slavery, the, the servant says, please identify. And it's those words that Tamar uses to confront him. Please identify. Now think about this. Can you imagine the pains of conviction that must have swept over him? Perhaps as his face begins to blush, as he holds the signet and the cord and the staff in his hand, and he hears those words, please identify. And it hits him. The one who was involved in the deception of his father has himself been deceived. A starker disclosure of the guilt of a man I can't find anywhere in the Bible. Everyone knows he's guilty. Then we consider a second important aspect of the scene that begins to reveal the significance of why this chapter's here. It's part of Genesis. I want you to notice in the middle of verse 26. Notice how Judah responds. In verse 26, he said, she is more righteous than I. It seems that Judah recognizes his sin here. He's been planning to kill someone for the exact same exact sin that he himself had committed. Now, the actual wording of the Hebrew text here reveals that Judah knows that he's not righteous. When he compares Tamar's actions to his own hypocritical secret sins... He recognizes that he is not in the right. He is wrong. He has no case. No judge would find him innocent. And so in this text, Judah confesses his wrongdoing. And, I think, might actually change for good. Now, there's some question as to what to do with this little phrase, right? She is more righteous than I and how far it goes. There's debate about this, but I think that there are a few indications in this text and the rest of Genesis that make me think that what we see here is fr the frank confession of a man who knows he's guilty. I think this for a few reasons. I think first, the text says that Judah never knows Tamar in this way again. If you picked up on that in the text, that is, he will not commit the same sin over again. But I think there's confession of wrongdoing here. And I think that there perhaps is an admission of guilt. And uh, one of the other ways I would say that is think about Judah as he relates to his other brothers. 
Judah is the fourth son of Jacob, and the, the three older sons have already disqualified themselves from the, the birthright and blessing. Okay? Remember Reuben? What did he do? The oldest? He slept with Jacob's wife, and there is no record whatsoever of any acknowledgement of wrongdoing from Reuben. No confession of sin, no repentance, no asking for forgiveness, nothing. Commits his sin and acts as if nothing's happened. The second and third sons, their names are Levi and Simeon. You remember them? They wipe out an entire male population of a city in which the man lived who had raped their sister Dinah. And forced to answer for this, they defend their actions and they never admitted any wrongdoing. They never repent or ask for forgiveness and are cursed for their anger at the end of Genesis. But Judah's different. Judah admits that he has not been righteous. He has not been righteous. And another reason I think this is later in Genesis, we see encouraging signs from Judah. So this story within a story, the story of Judah within Joseph's story, that first story isn't even done yet. The next times we see Judah, he leads his brother brothers in better ways. He volunteers to stand in for a brother who's been taken captive. He is concerned for the well-being of his elderly father, and he is identified by Jacob at the end of his life as the one through whom kings will come. Ultimately, we know what that means, don't we? As followers of Jesus Christ, it will be through Judah that David comes, and through Judah later, the Messiah himself comes. What grace from God. This calloused, immoral, spiritually blind man finds grace and I believe is transformed so that Judah is one of the best illustrations of confession in the Old Testament. I'm going to skip some of my notes here and keep moving just so we get to the last scene. Scene four is what I call vigorous offspring. Look at verse 27. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand. His name was called Zerah. I call this offspring vigorous for a few reasons. Uh, first, Tamar is the mother of twins. No surprise. Twins. I love twins. I love twin birth stories, but this one is weird as you read it. Okay, we find out in the text, one of the twins sticks his hand out. His name becomes Zira, which means to dawn. I don't know if that is normal. I don't think it is from my limited experience. But something else happens uh, and Zira's hand, Zira's hand is pulled back in. That's when there is some rearranging in the womb. Okay. If they were like Jacob and Esau, it might be bashing in the womb. Twins duke it out here. Can you, can you imagine this? Perez pulls him back in, spins him around, puts a reverse leg whip on him, 
and then beats them out. Lively twins. But second, these twins are vigorous because they come, they will become the father of great people. Zerah becomes the father of the Zerahites. Perez, well, his descendants are awesome. It's through Perez that King David comes and later the Messiah. As a matter of fact, Tamar and Perez are found in the genealogy of David at the end of the book of Ruth, and they're also found in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the beginning of Matthew's gospel. That's the story. Now Moses writes this ancient record about Judah's fall, I believe, for one important purpose that we'll close with. He writes it to inform us how God can lift up any sinner. As I consider Moses' aim with this story, and why do you put this text in here? It's to show us God can lift any fallen sinner. Judah was callous. He was an exploiter of Joseph and Tamar. He raised two sons who were killed by God for their wickedness, and he is blind to their spiritual condition. He was immoral, falling into sin that he thought was prostitution, and he was self-righteous, condemning someone else severely for the same sin that he's committed. I don't think there's any question. Judah was a terrible brother, a terrible father, a worse father-in-law, And a bad friend. He's the worst. Right? Certainly there's no hope for this guy. But God. Men and women. But God. We read this text. Beginning of our. Service today. Ephesians 2. Verses 1 through 6. Let me reread just a little bit of that for you. And you all were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our own flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the body, of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. What wonder, men and women, what grace. And when I think of the table that we are just about ready to partake in, I think of such grace that one sacrifice could forgive all of our iniquities. That through the cross, we would be redeemed from the pit, crowned with covenant love and mercy, 
we can relate to Judah, who perhaps was forgiven for his sin. 